You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. On today's broadcast, Archbishop Sheen will teach us on the topic of how to talk, and he gave this lesson back in the 1950s on his television series, Life is Worth Living, and so I thought it would be a good opportunity to refresh refresh ourselves with Uh, how to talk, and there's a right way and a wrong way, and uh, Bishop Sheen will show us the right way of how to talk. So looking forward to that reflection. Uh, He's also going to teach us how to pray, uh, of course, with the Our Father, and gave a beautiful retreat talk back in the 1970s that we'll replay for you, and uh, of course you'll enjoy it. Um, Whenever we can meditate on the words of the Our Father, uh, the, the prayer that our Lord taught us, Uh, we will draw closer to God. And so I'm looking also very forward to that lesson. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has been purchasing the book, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, uh, Fulton Sheen Anthology, uh, a book that I edited uh, just a few months ago. And it's doing very well and uh, being well received uh, all over North America. And uh, again, if you would like a copy, uh, you can visit my website at bishopsheen.com today.com and there you'll see the book and um, you could uh, just email me and I can try to uh, send one out to you and of course uh, we're asking for a donation to help us offset our cost here at Radio Maria and the work we do so again it's a win-win you help us at Radio Maria and we will help you uh, improve your soul and uh, this book will draw you closer into Christ Uh, everyone who has read the book Uh, talks about how uh, they fall more and more in love with the Church, with our Lord and our Blessed Mother. So uh, some of the benefits of reading some of the meditations in this book entitled The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, an anthology by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, published by Sophia Institute Press, a fine publisher of Catholic books. And so let us now, uh, of course, join Bishop Sheen as he gives us this reflection entitled How to Talk. And I'd ask you to sit back and relax and uh, just, again, find that peace of 
mind that you're in good hands here with the good bishop. God love you. Friends, I was in a taxi cab not very long ago, and the taxi driver said to me, you know, I never had much of an education. I didn't get beyond the third grade. But he said, driving a taxi cab, you meet all kinds of people, and you pick up a good many big words. And he proceeded to use a number of polysyllabic words, I am sorry to say, not always in their right context. And as I was getting out of the cab, he said, I want to tell you that I do like you on television, and you have a wonderful voice. It has so much animosity in it. <laughs> And that gave me the idea that perhaps you might be interested in hearing a few ideas on how to give a talk. Because so many in America have to give public speech. Now, I will do that on two conditions. First of all, that you understand at the very beginning that I am not a model speaker and not an orator. I know sometimes it is said that I am an orator. There are weak moments when I believe it. I will tell you why. I always notice that when I finish speaking, there is a great awakening. <laughs> take your time, take your time. <laughs> and then a second condition is that any suggestions that we have to offer are purely personal. We will merely tell you the way we do it, the way we prepare. It may not be helpful to anyone else, but we will give it to you for what it's worth. And it is worth reminding you that my method is not necessarily the best. A few years ago, I was talking in Canada one Sunday afternoon in a theater, and a collection was being taken up as I spoke, and I saw men coming with boxes and passing the aisle. When one of them finally got very close to me, I said, what's the idea of this collection? He said, to hire better speakers next year. <laughs> A word about preparing a discourse. The preparation of a discourse is both remote and proximate. How long does it take to prepare a speech? How long does it take to prepare one of these telecasts? Oh, I would say about 30 or 40 years. That's remote preparation. The other day I was coming up from Washington. There were about 60 people on the plane. You asked how long it took to prepare and serve dinner, I would say about 45, 50 minutes. But that is not the whole story. Think how long it took to grow the carrots. And then the raising of the sheep. And the potato bugs that had to be fought to give us potatoes. <laughs> Incidentally, did you ever notice how tired the salad is on planes as always like this? <laughs> a speech is something like that. There is a tremendous remote preparation. And it is impossible really ever to give a good speech without study, study, study. <laughs> 
I receive all kinds of letters asking, give some suggestions on preparing a speech. There are only three rules. Work, work, work. There is no shortcut. When asked to study science, literature, history, forego many social evenings just to be alone with one's books. And the books are the most wonderful friends in the world. When you meet them, you pick them up. They're always ready to give you a few ideas. When you put them down, they never get mad. And when you take them up again, they seem to enrich you all the more. Therefore, study and approximate preparation. Now, that is the immediate preparation of any speech. Suppose now we were assigned a subject. I'm going to take one just out of the air. Suppose you ask me to talk about angels. After all, we've never had a talk on angels. I'm not going to give one now, but just suppose that we had to give a talk on angels. Well, the first thing that we would do would be, well, let us get a few ideas in general about angels. Well, maybe the first thing I would talk about would be the knowledge of angels, namely, how do angels know? Then the second major idea that we might talk about would be how angels are related one to another. And thirdly, what is the function of an angel? Now those would be three major ideas. Our remote preparation would be concerned with where to find information on angels. The scriptures, Boethius, Thomas Aquinas would be the three greatest sources. Then after one had these ideas down, what we do is we then begin to fill these out on a sheet of paper. For example, the knowledge of angels. Well, we would show that angels do not know the way we do. We derive all our knowledge from below. But an angel derives its knowledge from above. Ideas are poured into an angel's mind like we pour water into a glass. It's a very handy arrangement. Then we would think of other ideas here, how angels are related one to another, how the superior angels illumine the inferior angels. Then the function of angels, some to assist at the throne of God, others to preside over creations, others to be special messengers of God, and others to clean a blackboard. <laughs> now in the preparation of any talk, Tuesday night when we come home from the television theater, we begin worrying about what we will talk about the following week. And we begin writing out a plan. I write it out on a sheet of paper, and then the next day tear up the paper. <laughs> then I rethink it all over again. And then when I've written it out again, tear it up and have nothing left. Then the next day, start thinking again. New ideas will come. I will forget some of the old ones. Maybe it's just as well. Tear up that paper. And the result is that after six days of that, all you have left is, this is tonight's talk, there. <laughs> I didn't tear that up because I brought it with me so you could see it. <laughs> Therefore, nothing is memorized. Today we have only readers and television. There aren't any speakers anymore, much less orators. 
Everybody's wedded to a piece of paper. They write something out on a piece of paper and they think that what they've written out is so sacred that the living mind must bow down to that piece of paper. Why this mind of ours is made to the image and likeness of God. And yet we bow down and make it adore this inert thing. So that instead of memorizing from the outside in, it's much better to memorize from the inside out. Namely, think and think and think at the subject over and over again until it becomes a part of you. It's not perfect, not as perfect as if it were written. But at any rate, people know that it's your talk, because when it's written, who wrote it? <laughs> and then, of course, you make mistakes, but that's all right. People say, well, he's human. That gives me a considerable amount of encouragement. <laughs> so much for the preparation. I dropped the dollar bill. Angel, pick that up, and we'll have that after. <laughs> Now, the three conditions of a good talk are, first of all, sincerity, secondly, clarity, and thirdly, flexibility. First of all, sincerity, without any affectation, without any poise, without any cultivated voice, just being yourself. The word sincere has a nice origin. When the Romans found pieces of marble that were imperfect, they found it necessary to put some wax. And wax, in Latin, as you know, is serif. And they would fill up the imperfection of the marble with wax and then color it. When they found a perfect piece of marble, it was sine without wax, and so it became sincere. And a sincere speech is just simply... Being yourself as you really are. Being natural. Everybody gives a good talk in conversation. One of the first rules in speaking is do not imitate Bishop Sheen. <laughs> now, because everybody has his own temper, his own spirit, his own disposition, and out of that comes his character. Perhaps... The greatest offenders against sincerity, or at least seemingly so, are those in my own profession. Sometimes when we get in the pulpit, we cultivate an artificial voice. When we pray, oh, send down thy benediction upon the sailors who are at sea, upon the merchants who are in their shops. Amen. Well... You know that you wonder sometimes when people pray whether they're giving marching orders to God or praying to the audience. <laughs> Some years ago, I was asked to address Congress. I, to say a prayer to Congress, I mean. I didn't say a prayer. I told them to pray. I went on the principle that maybe a strange voice is the one God most quickly hears. <laughs> I can remember when I went, went out for a debating team in college, 
and I was chosen on the debating team in the night before the Notre Dame debate. Our professor of debating, Father Bergen, a marvelous teacher, called me over and he said, you're absolutely rotten. He said, we've never had anybody in the history of this college who was a worse speaker than yourself. And I said, well, if I'm so rotten, why did you pick me? He said, because you can think, not because you can talk. <laughs> he said, get over in that corner. Take a paragraph of your speech and go through it. I went through it for an hour. He said, see any mistake? No. Again, an hour and a half, two hours, two hours and a half. At the end of two hours and a half, I was exhausted. And he said, you still see what's wrong. Well, being naturally quick, I caught on. <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm not sincere. I'm not myself. Well, he says, that's the answer. And Shakespeare says, to thy own self be true, and it must follow as night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. And secondly, clarity. And clarity means understanding a subject. I remember once in college, in class in cosmology, telling a professor when he asked me a definition of time, I said, I know what it is, but I can't tell you. He said, if you knew what it is, you could tell me. <laughs> the reason professors are dull in class, some professors, is because they do not understand their subject. If you want to hear a model professor, I do not often look at television, but a few weeks ago I heard a professor, Aliyah, of Princeton University, a professor of chemistry. He, to my mind, is one of the model professors of this country, and I hope all the professors listen to him. He knows the subject. It's easy, you know, to write a book with footnotes in it, because everything you don't know, you put down in the footnotes. <laughs> but to write on that same subject, so that children in the seventh or eighth grade can understand it. Then you have to know your subject. And for the sake of clarity, too, always give a plan. Tell them what you're going to do. Give them your points. Then they know when you're going to finish. <laughs> Otherwise, they get up with a sheaf of papers and you say, well, he's got two inches more to go. I remember once attending a philosophical convention and the speaker was reading a paper on essence and existence for an hour and a half and we all became exhausted. He said, I forgot to tell you that I have three carbon copies here of my speech. It was such a relief. <laughs> Therefore, have a plan and in television, always time yourself from the end. Just go on talking until you say, well, it's about time to finish and allow yourself two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, whatever it is. And then you finish right on the second. Now, in this telecast, I have to finish at 25 minutes and 30 seconds past 8 o'clock. So, about three or, or maybe two minutes before, I will begin concluding. And I will finish at 8.25.30. You can make me finish before by shutting me off now. <laughs> The final suggestion is flexibility. If the audience is tiring, well, cut out a few pages. Cut out a few ideas. Then there will be interruptions. You may be heckled in an audience. I remember once addressing a group of lawyers, and one lawyer was in a terrible state of amiable incandescence, and 
And he started shouting something which nobody understood. And I said, well, you've been practicing at the wrong bar. <laughs> I do not mean to say that I always have drunks in my audience, but I recall... <laughs> I recall once in Philadelphia, some drunk stood up in the gallery and began saying something. You know, it's very irritating. I said to him, you know, the only man that hates to be interrupted in the middle of a sentence is a prisoner. <laughs> we'll finish that next week. <laughs> once I was giving instructions to a convert class in Washington and... I was talking, I think, on the Blessed Trinity, and someone began to heckle me about Jonas. And he said, how was Jonas in the belly of the whale for three days? I said, my good man, I, I don't know. I haven't any idea. But I said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonas. <laughs> he said, suppose Jonas isn't there. I said, then you ask him. <laughs> I was talking once in a small country parish, and there was a crying infant in the second pew, crying like I used to cry. And the mother got up, and I said, Madam, it's quite all right. The child isn't bothering me. She said, I know, but you're bothering the child. <laughs> uh, when there is flexibility, and when one does not have to follow the words exactly simply because one is memorized, well, then one can make use of any occasion that may happen to arise in the course of the discourse. Think of the beautiful impromptu speeches of our blessed Lord. For example, when he met the woman at the well. And he turned the whole subject of thirst and water to the idea of supernatural grace. And above and beyond all of these, which I mentioned is important in preparing a discourse, there is still something else much more important. We, of course, have this great advantage. We have only to speak the truth. And we are trustees of God's truth. And therefore, when we talk, we realize that we are only the flute. And God is the wheel. We supply only the quality of tone. Nothing else. And the most important ingredient, therefore, of any discourse is praying and meditating about it. I will tell you what I do before I come over here. The very last thing I do is to go into the chapel, 
kneel down before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and say to him, Give me strength tonight to speak thy truth, that you may be known, not me, that you may be loved, and not that I may be loved. And secondly, Give me also the power to instill in those who listen to me a love of thee, so that there may not be only truth communicated, but also a love of that truth. Fire and heat are inseparable. They're inseparable in nature, and they ought to be inseparable in anyone who gives a discourse, namely the light of God's truth and the tremendous fire and dynamism that one ought to have simply because it is his truth and we are the guardians and trustees of it. This is the secret of how I prepare a talk which leaves only one thing left to be done. Will you say a prayer for me that I may practice what I preach? If we wish to keep our light and heat, we must keep our sun. If we wish to keep our perfume, we must keep our flowers. And if we wish to keep the glorious rights and liberties of America, we must also keep our gods. God. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, one 866 357 4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. And I want to just, of course, thank the many listeners who have helped us over the years. Uh, Your uh, financial contributions, your prayerful support go a long way in keeping Radio Maria on the air. 
And I also want to thank the many listeners who have been writing in uh, to our website at bishopsheentoday.com and ordering the book, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross. Uh, We really appreciate that. It's nice to see such a great response. And if you'd like a copy of the book, uh, please visit bishopsheentoday.com and there you'll find uh, the book offer. So now we're going to have uh, Bishop Sheen uh, talk about prayer and, of course, the Our Father. So uh, very much a reflection he gave a number of years ago, but uh, still very true today. So sit back and relax now. Enjoy the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. The Gospel which you have just heard read is on the subject of prayer. And it is one in which the disciples came to our Lord and asked him, how should we pray? And in answer, he gave them the prayer, which we know so well, the Our Father. Now, I'm going to describe the Our Father to you and explain it to you. Notice that our blessed Lord said, when you pray, say, Our Father. Our Lord did not say, My Father. It is interesting to go through the Gospels and note that never once did our Lord say of you and me and himself, Our Father. He said, I will ascend to my father and your father, never our father. Why? Because he is God. He's the natural son of God. We're only the adopted children. And he makes that distinction. So he says to us, when you pray, you say, our father. Now, we do not get the full impact of this, but just put yourself in the mentality of the Jews who heard it. Remember that the name of God was so sacred to the Jews that there was one name for him they would never pronounce. It was too sacred. And even in the Old Testament, we find only two or three instances in which God is called Father, and then there's always another word to modify it. They were so very careful to glorify the Heavenly Father. Now, when we come, however, to our blessed Lord, see the familiarity with which he talks about his Father. He said, my Father's working until now, and I work. The night of the Last Supper, when Philip said, show us the Father. Our Lord said, Philip, Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you do not understand? The Father and I are one. So the Jews, therefore, stood at a great distance from the name of God. Now, our blessed Lord used a word which we use only when we're children. When our blessed Lord spoke to his heavenly Father, he used very often, and probably throughout the entire gospel, but we know on certain occasions, he used the word Abba, A-B-B-A. 
It is not a good Aramaic word. And our Lord spoke Aramaic. What is Abba for father? Is it just father in the abstract sense of the word? No. Children have a pet name for their father. It might, for example, at the very beginning of a child's life, be Dada. Now that's what Abba means. It was the child's name for the father. So contrast on one side, the fear of the Jews of ever pronouncing the name of God and then our blessed Lord coming to earth and calling him Abba. That's why they picked up stones on three occasions to, to kill him. And he said, why do you do this? And they said, because you made yourself one with the Father. Sure, his nature was one with the Father. And so important is this word Abba, that when St. Paul began preaching the gospel of our Lord to the Greeks, when he wrote, he wrote in Greek. He took the Aramaic word Abba and kept it in the Greek. So that in two of his letters, one of them uh, in the Romans and the other to the Galatians, he tells his people, remember that your father is Abba, that he has given you the spirit of adoption to be his children. So this is the beginning of the Our Father, Our Father, then who art in heaven. We start above. We can never lift ourselves by the lobes of our ears. We live in a horizontal world where we believe we help one another, but the real help that makes us new creatures and children of God has to come from above. Hence, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. That means, may it be sanctified, may it be glorified, and may you be worshipped. Now, what is worship? For example, we think, well, why does God demand our worship? Is he sitting up there in a golden throne, waiting for us as obedient servants of him to prostrate ourselves before him in worship? Is that the meaning of worship? No. Now, when, how often, for example, a little girl in the springtime, girl about three or four, will go out into the garden, into the yard, and pick up dandelions, and bring dandelions into the mother. Now, let me tell you that those dandelions are a bore to the mother. She wouldn't admit it. She doesn't need the dandelions. But has any mother in the world, when she's taken these dandelions, ever thrown them out into the garbage? No, she said, oh, how nice of you, dear. You love me, don't you? And so the mother accepts that worship in order to train the daughter to be loving. 
Now that's what worship is. In the theater, for example, we applaud. Applaud means worthful. That's worship. Now, a week ago Sunday, I gave a retreat to about 1,200 actors and actresses in New York at the Majestic Theater. The retreat lasted all day. And about six or seven times during the day, I would come out and, and talk to all of these people who were so trained in the theater. Well, unlike other audiences, on the stage, they appreciate applause. They live by applause. So they think that anyone who appears on the stage must live by it too. So very often in the course of a talk, they would interrupt what I was saying by applause. Why? Because it was a manifestation of worthfulness. That's what worship is. God doesn't need it. We need it. So hallowed be thy name. Now thus far, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. These two phrases go together. Now we priests who are used to reading the Psalms and the scriptures have always noticed in the scriptures the balance of phrase. For example, in the Psalms you'll find a sentence, Thy statutes, O Lord, are good. Then the other half, Thy commandments are wise. In the second half, we say the same idea as we do in the first. But we just put it in different words. So in the Our Father, these two phrases, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, mean practically the same. How do we get into the kingdom of God? By doing his will. Now, many are going to get into the kingdom of God because they're doing his will according to their lights. But suppose we do not do his will. My finger pointed vertically signifies the will of God because it points to heaven. My finger horizontally represents my will because it's earthy and flat. Suppose I take my will and put it across God's will. When I do that, I get physically across. Psychologically, I get a complex. That's how we get mixed up. Now, I hope I have a pencil here. I'll use that as an illustration, too. Here is a pencil. Is this pencil good? Yes, it's good pencil. Why? Because it writes. That's the way you know when anything is good, if it fulfills the purpose for which it is made. When, therefore, I want this pencil to write God, it writes the word God. Suppose this pencil had a will of its own. And suppose when I wanted to write the word God, it wrote the word dog. I couldn't do anything with it. 
That is why when we fail to live up to God's law, he can't use us. As I couldn't use this pencil. We lack his power. And the more effective any person is in the church and in the world depends upon his relatedness to being under the hand of God so that he can use us as instruments. Or to give you another example, suppose I try to open a tomato can with this pencil. Now I do my own cooking, so I'm used to opening cans, but not with pencils. And I'm a terrible cook. Betty Crocker one day saw me cooking through a brick through the window. Suppose now I tried, I tried to open a tomato can with this pencil. One, I wouldn't open the can. And two, I would ruin the pencil. So when we try try to achieve happiness in some other way than a God-appointed way, supposed by drugs or alcohol or vice, anything of that kind, we think we're going to get a lot of pleasure out of it, but actually we never get the pleasure we intended and we hurt ourselves. Thus the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, means that we enter into the kingdom of God by doing his will, and that makes us happy. This is the secret of peace. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that the petitions of the Our Father have a division in the middle. The first three petitions refer to the heavenly, to God. Then we get this middle one. We can't live without bread. So we appeal to God for our daily subsistence. Give us this day our daily bread. But it could also mean... And there is a suggestion of it in the original, in the gospel. Give us this day our super substantial bread. Namely, the Eucharist. So very often the apostles misunderstood our blessed Lord when he spoke of bread. When they were crossing the lake in the storm... They became frightened, and our blessed, and the gospel gives the explanation. They did not take account of the mystery of the bread, of the miracle of the bread, when our blessed Lord multiplied the loaves and fishes in order to remind them that he had power to give us the bread of life. So the giving us, give us this day our daily bread, therefore, means not only that which is necessary for daily life, but in an applied sense also the Eucharist. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is reciprocal. We are forgiven by God as we forgive our neighbor. 
Our Lord mentioned that in the continuation of the gospel. Forgive and you will be forgiven. If we, however, hold grudges, we shut off the forgiveness of God. He cannot give it to us. Now, this forgiveness of God sometimes will require great effort on our part. I have a friends, I have friends, husband and wife, who suffered a great deal in prison. But before they were in prison under the communists, the husband was visited by the Nazi, by a Nazi. The husband and wife were Jew, born Jew, but then Lutheran. And the husband said to the Nazi, what have you been doing the last two weeks? He said, killing Jews. How many did you kill? Oh, he said, about 30,000 in two weeks. Were you in this particular village? Yes. How many Jews did you kill there? Oh, he said, I killed every Jew in that town. Do you ever ask God for forgiveness? No, I don't believe there's any such thing as forgiveness. And the husband said, let us see. My wife, Sabina, is upstairs asleep. She has not heard this conversation. I shall call her down. He said, Sabina, this is the man who killed your father, your mother, your three brothers, and two sisters. Sabina looked at him intently and then threw her arms around his neck and kissed him and said, as God forgives you, I forgive you. And the Nazi threw himself on his knees and begged forgiveness. So forgiveness is reciprocal. And lead us not into temptation. That means trial. Do not bring us into any trial that will be too great for us. First of all, we have trials. Remember that our blessed Lord said, in this world you will have tribulation. This life is not supposed to be easy. We're working out something. Life is a combat, a warfare. So we're asking God, please, do not put me into any war that may be too great for me. Lest I fall or be wounded. But deliver us from evil. Actually, it is not the proper ending, is not deliver us from evil, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the devil. Deliver us from Satan. And there is a devil. Then at the end, we say, Amen. Amen means, I've said it, may I live up to it, may it be fulfilled in me.
You never heard our blessed Lord say at the end of a prayer, Amen. We put the Amen in there. Our Lord did not. Unless it was meant for us to say it, as he actually did say. Our Lord always began his sentences when he wished to emphasize something with, Amen, Amen, I say to you. In other words, I give you the truth. Amen, amen. We put the amen at the very end. Now this is the Our Father that we say so often. We will say it during the Mass. And now I hope that it will have new meaning for you. And how do we know now that the Heavenly Father is so good? Well, we know it because our Lord has told us. You know, it almost seems as if the three persons of the Blessed Trinity are playing hide-and-seek. We never knew the Father well until the Son came and told us. Then we knew the Father was full of love and mercy. How do we know our Lord? If our Lord reveals the Father, who reveals our Lord? The Holy Spirit. So our Lord said, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will reveal me, who will make me clear to you. This is the purpose of the Spirit. Not odd manifestations. Any spirit that does not come to deepen this love of our blessed Lord and become truly his spirit is not the spirit of Christ. I suppose I could sum up the Our Father by telling you never to be discouraged. You have a heavenly Father and now this morning you have learned some Aramaic and it would be well, occasionally, to think of yourselves as little children. Because remember, only no old people are ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right. Our Lord said, unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to become young. And if you think yourself young, you will begin calling the heavenly Father in your mind and soul, Abba, 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 who art in heaven, God love you.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me this week on Your Life is Worth Living. I would ask that you would bring a friend with you next week, and until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
here on Radio Maria Canada.